Welcome to Cognizant Podcasts, tailor-made for easy listening. We bring you digital trends for busy executives on the go. Welcome to the second installment of our two-part podcast series on the ever-morphing dynamics of the nature of work. Listen to Michael Schrag, a research fellow from the MIT Center for Digital Business, and serial entrepreneur Soraya Darby, a general partner at Trail Mix Ventures, who joined Ben Pring and Desmond Dickerson from the Cognizant Center for the Future of Work to discuss ongoing shifts in today's workspace and their implications to the future of work. Since the graphical user interface innovations of Xerox in the late 1970s and the birth of mouse and keyboard, we've been tapping keys, clicking, and scrolling ever since. However, the winds of change are blowing, and devices now hear all. We may be living in the digital age, but our digits are becoming superfluous. Voice-driven devices and systems are becoming ubiquitous. Let's hear Michael Schrag and Soraya Darabi share their take on where voice stands among today's multimodal interfaces. I think voice is going to be, I think we're moving to a world unambiguously of multimodal interfaces. Yeah. And I think voice is going to become more important. I think it's going to become more important in a, not just in a commercial sense, but in a workplace sense, because we used to talk with people. The flip side, which creeps me out, and I, I wish to blame generation X, Y, and Z, or whatever portion of the alphabet is or is not being used, is I used to like talking with someone. I can't recall the last time, except from China, I got a call. Everybody is texting, everybody is email. So the irony for me, irony to the point of perverse, is that my workplace interactions are way more thumb-driven than voice-driven. And when we talk, seven out of 10 times, it's a function of something that was shared on a text or to clarify something. So the, the, the real answer to my opinion, it, the real answer to your question, in my opinion, is, is what will the multi-sensor interface look like as opposed to the rise of voice? Digital natives have a term for this. They call ah. it uh, meetings that could be email. And it's, it's, yes. it's a meme, and it's it's a joke that refers to what the report calls originals. Yeah. Um, That's classic. why they say "Okay, Boomer" to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just checking. Meeting. You almost got an "Okay, Boomer" on that last, <laughs> yeah. that last diatribe. Sure, I almost let it rip. Sure. Meetings that could be email perfectly uh, summarizes the concept that we don't need to have meetings to talk about everything. Right. In fact, it kills time and efficiency. Um, but I reserve in my personal life phone calls for people who are extra special. Although workplace interactions are largely thumb-driven, voice will eventually become more important in commercial and workplace interactions. A similar shift is happening across the global internet, particularly as it relates to the effective and responsible use of data. The internet's global village is splintering into local tribes where various data regimes and regulations are in play. Listen on for Michael Schreg and Soraya Darabi's views on the current and future state of privacy. This notion that because of exactly that point, how we handle data, how we individually, societally, corporately make that trade-off between convenience, personalization, and privacy, that around the world there are going to be different data-based regimes, if you like. You could talk about the original American internet, you could talk about a GDPR European internet, and then you could talk about a Chinese 
internet potentially. Mm -hmm. So the internet splintering into that. How do, how do you see that, Michael? Is, is one of those versions gonna win? Or again, are we moving into a kind of multimodal world where large organizations basically have to have different data policies for different parts of the world? Well, I want to try to merge something that Desmond said with that question. First yeah. and foremost, the overarching thing is, is, yes, we are entering into a cyber cold war. Europe clearly has fundamentally different views of privacy than yeah. most Americans do. And uh, the Chinese mainland government clearly has to be charitable, a more authoritarian yeah. and invasive view <laughs> of personal privacy than either Europe or the United States or Latin America. But the phrase that you mentioned casually, I think is particularly important, Desmond, and it's one that shockingly is not present in most of the Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 organizations that I work with, is data governance. Mm -hmm. GDPR, whatever its flaws, and there are a lot of them, was a serious effort to address data governance in the context of privacy mm. and commercialization. I think data governance in terms of value creation, personalization, privacy, that is a much more important theme. It's one that I think most legislators and regulators and litigators do a piss poor job of, <laughs> of appreciating and understanding. Yeah. But, but the core thing is I think we're seeing culturally, nationally, regionally, different views of data as a value, customization and privacy as a value, and I think the splinternet metaphor, the splinternet framing is the likeliest scenario over the next 10 to 15 years. How do you see that, Sarah? Well, to use your China example, I think of that as a horror story, a science fiction novel come to life. What's happening under the Jinping regime right now where um, individuals in China are given scores based on their ability to pay their bills on time, and all of this is saved in some master database, anonymous, that the government has full control over. Uh, you really can't write that script. It's, it's out of Hollywood. It's Black Mirror, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it is. And <laughs> And yet, in the United States, we're not as far away from that reality as we think we are. There are five major technology companies that own that same amount of data that could consolidate conceivably, and we have no understanding at, um, you know, at an educational level in the United States of how to protect our own privacy, how to understand it, and if there's not this, this language and this literacy around what digital privacy means, then how can we fight back if our government begins to pull in the reins? As the splinternet takes shape, data privacy has emerged as a chief concern in our accelerating digital age. Image manipulation and misinformation are among the unfortunate negative consequences of our digital era. Ben Pring engages our panelists in a brief back and forth on the implications of biased data and fake news. Clearly, we're now entering this new era of WYSIWYG beware, because we're not sure what we're seeing is, is real. Fake news. Fake news. And it, again, it seems comical at the moment, this whole notion when you see, see Steve Buscemi as Jennifer Lawrence, it kind of seems crazy. But what happens when a US president suddenly says, you know, let the bombing begin in five minutes? It's not gonna seem so funny. The first thing I was taught when I took computer science, and yes, I did take computer science, was garbage in, garbage out. I mean, this, is, this really does go that far back. And it links to Desmond's 
throwaway comment which shouldn't be thrown away, which is the data governance. Right. Yeah, <laughs> data lineage, data quality. I think data quality becomes way more important in this. You know, the one particular example that I'm obsessed with, and I have to confess, I was dismissive initially, and then I was shown the data sets, and I became a convert, the, zeal the, the zealousness of the convert, which is, you know, machine learning pro uh, uh, instantiating biases. If it's a biased data set, you're going to get biased outcomes, mm -hmm. whether it's supervised, unsupervised, or reinforcement yep. learning. Yep. So, so I think it goes back to the to the data quality issues you've, that you've, you've, you've written raised. about that, uh, Desmond. That whole notion of trying to take bias out of the the algorithms. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. That it's it's tough. All of these conversations. It's like AI is out of the box now. And if we've got the deep fakes, the technology is there. If we've got the facial recognition, the tech is there. Uh, so we're just kind of hanging by the seat of our pants trying to figure out how do we do it right, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, you've written about it too in terms of, you know, before we had the Manhattan Project and we realized, oh, these nuclear weapons, it's, it's too much. This will destroy the world. And it feels like we're moving to a place with AI where we're understanding the, the impact of it and the power it has behind it could really, you know, destroy us all. So we have to figure out you know, what, what stop gaps or how do we slow so that down? True. But the we is the interesting question. Who are the we's? Who are the, the voices of God, the, the mm. yeah. commissioners of who control? Who it's fixes it's us. This? Yeah, it's us. We've all got to be involved in fixing this, simply. Machine learning and artificial intelligence is contributing to the proliferation of fake news and other forms of misinformation, threatening our financial and emotional well being. These technologies also threaten our privacy if misused making it quite easy for those with whom we knowingly and unknowingly interact and transact to see us like never before. A simple act of loading a web page generates information about us and paints a sophisticated picture of what makes us tick. So do we have enough sincere understanding of what privacy is? Listen in as Ben Pring, Soraya Darabi, and Michael Schreg take a deep dive into the notion of privacy. A sincere understanding of what privacy even means, I mm. think, is important. Mm. Um, and again, I'll go back to the basics. I think my concept of privacy is very different because I was born in 1983 than perhaps Desmond's, mm -hmm. perhaps yours. Um, when I think of privacy, I, I mostly think about my credit card information, uh, my social security number, and I think about changing my, passport, uh, my, my passwords frequently mm -hmm. so that somebody doesn't steal my identity, which is my worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. But what privacy means my to- My best case scenario. Right, <laughs> exactly. What it means um, really varies on the individual, and, and perhaps that's our biggest problem. Trying to create a definition around privacy means um, creating subsets of what we think privacy could be. One of the thoughts that I've floated um, in this report and the From and Two report and other stuff I've been writing, almost as a trial balloon to see how people react to it, is simply this rhetorical question, will we ever turn any of this stuff off? I mean, you think it's too late? It's well, too we, late. We can't walk what would you turn off? How would I have gotten well, here? Well, Michael's not on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I'm not on Facebook now. I'm beginning to think, should I turn off Twitter? I, the thing I've noticed with my own Twitter feed is I just keep unfollowing people. <laughs> and I'm sort of... But do you have an Alexa at home? Hmm. And do you turn that off on the weekends? Do you unplug it? No. So technology is ambient. It's everywhere. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's this, yeah. you know? Are you just exactly. going to get rid of this? My wife unplugged the uh, Alexa. Yeah. 
And there are names for that now. Tech hiatus, tech Shabbat. I mean, people mm. have terms for it. Well, that's right. Is it one day going to turn into a weekend? Is a weekend going to say turn into four days? Is it going to turn into turning the whole thing off altogether? My brother worked at Facebook, just, just left, and he had a very interesting way to try to finesse the privacy thing. He said, it's not about privacy, it's about the control of your own information. So that's one way of saying it. Oh, it's not about privacy. What, where do you have control? Where do you not have control over information? But there's a, another point that I would like to make, and I'll, I'll make it briefly. When I was growing up, when you and I were growing up, if somebody had cancer, it was a secret. Mm. You did not discuss mm. that kind of disease. If, if a woman had had a, a miscarriage, mm. it was not discussed. Mm. We have moved now where literally, literally, I'm in New York, tens of thousands of men, women, and children with ribbons mm. march through Central Park or sure. Riverside yeah. because our notions of privacy around personal health, what could be more intimate, that have fundamentally changed. I will argue that the lack of self-consciousness about privacy in certain domains of healthcare has been net-net a collective good and an individual good. So I just want us to be careful here that we are not frozen in, in 2020 amber right. regarding a, a, back, a current backlash to certain clearly malign aspects. Big tech is in the crosshairs of a major backlash, so much so that many perceive technology as doing as much harm as good. Thriving in the future of work will require us to confront and treat the malignant aspects of our digital age today. Staying relevant and meaningfully employed will take incredible foresight into the ever-morphing ways and means of work. To learn more, please visit the Center for the Future of Work section on www.cognizant.com and check out our special report, From To Everything You Wanted to Know About the Future of Your Work But Were Afraid to Ask. Thank you for listening to the Cognizant Podcast, Digital Trends for Busy Executives on the Go.